Welcome back to Canberra Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and this is episode 207 of the podcast and I'm joined in conversation by Robert Swigger. Robert is a true polymath who's written novels, poetry and has taught English abroad while learning martial arts and has been on so many crazy expeditions all over the world. Today we wanted to focus on one of Robert's books that was written back in 2002, Being a Man in the Lousy Modern World and there continues to be a crisis and a real challenge for men to find their place in the world more than 20 years later so it was still timely for us to have this conversation you can expect to learn how modern technology can keep us as children for far too long the four factors which need to be in place for a man to feel more like a man how to show courage the actions that robert has personally taken in his life to feel more like a man and why discussing this is not an attack on females but actually a drive for a better happier and more fulfilled society overall where we all work together and feel more aligned in our lifestyles this is a, a midweek podcast release for you so hopefully you're enjoying this little special treat the reaction to sunday's episode with dr julian episode 206 of the podcast has been absolutely incredible just three days in so i'm delighted to be able to bring you another brilliant episode with robert today's podcast is not brought to you by one of my usual sponsors it is in fact brought to you by my upcoming podcast masterclass course the vast majority of podcasts fail they fall apart they don't have a strategy they don't have a process or system in place for them to keep going and 80% stop before they even reach episode 8 with a further 100,000 podcasts dropping off before they get to episode 24. The odds of a podcast being successful are extremely low but that doesn't have to be the case. It doesn't have to be you. The benefits and opportunities that podcasting has opened up to me and many of my peers over the last three years has been incredible whether that's been from a business perspective, a personal brand perspective, a network perspective. Building a podcast opens so many doors. I've learned a tremendous amount in the last three years building a top one percent global podcast and i've distilled all those lessons and experiences and insights down into a simple to follow nine module video course including equipment and software guides templates for managing and securing the best possible guest in the niche that you're interested in and even the secrets that i do to research and bring the best possible insights when preparing for an interview with a guest as well as how i promoted and marketed the show to grow it to where it's got to now this course will not be available until early october if you're listening to before then what you can do is you can register your interest early and dm me on instagram or linkedin the word masterclass and i will add you to the list for that i started mentioning this on the episode with dakota which is 205 and with dr julian 206 and i've already built out a list of a number of different names who have been added who will get the early bird offer at the discounted rate for the first 50 people to sign up so do not delay if you are interested in starting your own successful podcast and building something truly special then do reach out and get involved on that list now, before we dive into this almost hour conversation with Mr. Robert Twigger, I want to ask you to make sure that you are subscribed or following on whatever platform you're on. And if you think this conversation would re resonate with a man or perhaps a woman in your life, then please do take the time to share the conversation with them and help the show keep growing. That the music's going to play, you can hear from myself, Mr. Robert Twigger. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much Thank for being you for here. Asking me, glad to be here. And as I was saying to you before I hit record, I could have chosen so many of your different blogs and articles and books that you've worked on to discuss, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be room for us to do that again in the future. But I wanted to focus on one that really stood out to me, particularly as uh, a 30 year old man in the modern world. But you wrote over 20 years ago now about being a man in the lousy modern world. At that time, that was what, 2002 yeah, yeah. or something like that, I think it was published, you've been working on it. 
What inspired you to write a book with that title? The, um, actually, the title, um, it was originally going to be called The Hemingway Complex, uh, which I still prefer as a title, but the publishers forced the being a man on me, which sounded a bit wet. Um, and so I, I managed to finagle my way into the subtitle of In the Lousy Modern World, which was a quote I got from Tony Parsons, who's a writer I really admire, um, especially his book Man and Boy, which I, you know came out about the same time, maybe a bit, a bit sooner. But uh, um, so that's, that's, that's where the, the sort of title, but the idea came about twofold. One, I wanted to write about lots of small adventures I had, that none of which really added up to a, a book-length adventure, but I thought that they would be worth writing about. And secondly, I'd become increasingly irritated because in the 90s, the idea came to me in the sort of, I don't know, about 1998 or something. But in the 90s, the, um, suddenly this new phenomena appeared in advertising where the husband was always portrayed as a total goof and the woman always saved the day. And it's a co really common trope. It, it's, it's so accepted now in advertising um, and in sitcoms and so on. Um, I mean, there's, there's been some slight re readjustment, but at that time it was a kind of a novelty because in sort of 50s and 60s advertising, the, the dad was seen as a competent person and the mum was in charge of the home, so it's more traditional. And it's got me to. I think there's been a big shift in that in in, in a lot of regards. It wouldn't, maybe wouldn't just be advertising, Robert, but even like films and media and even books yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, look at Ken, poor old Ken in Ken and Barbie. Not that I've seen the film, uh, but but my wife and daughter went to see it last night, and they came back and they said, Ken, Ken is a douchebag. But if he is one, why do they give him so much screen time? <laughs> it's like, what's going on? You kind of it both ways. Anyway, no. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a common trope. And I mean, I was, I, Greg Isles is an American writer. I really admire. I love his stuff. Uh, but even he succumbs in this book, uh, Natchez Burning. He, in the end, the, there's a sort of an incredible showdown. But it's the woman who tackles the bad guys rather than the guy. Now, the guy is, he's a lawyer and writer. So it seems implausible that he would suddenly be able to sort of slash someone's throat with a razor. Uh, which is what the weapon is, but his his girlfriend does, and we kind of believe it because this this sort of whole model of a sort of like if a woman's anger, a righteous woman's anger, is 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 raised up, she will become a killer, much more much more ferocious than the man. And um, I just I just think that's a well, it's kind of a weird idea because it's it's so implausible. <laughs> um, I mean, strength-wise, it would be just an implausibility. And, and unless the woman had had some martial arts training, why? I mean, I suppose the only thing you're talking about there is the sort of the willingness to kill someone. So there's women are more murderous than men. But, the, but it's sort of accepted, and he wrote it in the book, and I'm just kind of accepting it because I, I think it was a bit implausible if him as a lawyer did something like that. So it has changed. Yes, but during that period then when men are maybe having their role in society change to be a bit more of the the jovial fool or less competent or less able to do things that gets you thinking that you may need to write about that and about why that is and maybe how to push back against yeah. it i thought it's just wrong <laughs> when things break in my house um uh, or most people's houses it's the bloke who is quite happy to go and fix things and um 
uh, and that's not that's just because they prefer doing it and usually they're better at doing it and uh, that's life <laughs> There's an there's an element of people pushing back so hard against traditional gender roles and quote unquote stereotypes, and I find it unusual because they do come to bear in so many different situations. And um, I was mentioning you were mentioning a, a a book there. I know that as a as a child in the early 1990s, my parents would read me books where a lot of the time the the male protagonist was the was the hero and was the was 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 strong and um, I was I was seeing recently that um, Roald Dahl is becoming increasingly a target for the politically correct in terms of either rewriting his texts or asking them not to be read to children. But I know, for example, in uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and uh, Danny Champion of the World, albeit that sometimes the characters had a little bit of a a nefarious streak and like to get up to nonsense. The man was a competent role model yeah. and he was loyal and he was strong and he was probably a concept of what we would call a, a positive expression of masculinity at that time. And that was the kind of books that I was reading. So I can see why if we are maybe perhaps moving towards this changing of the role of men, that that's not how they are illustrated in novels or books or stories nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's complicated, but it's sort of to do with I mean, for a start, men have willingly given up that role because they feel pretty cool about it. And it is at the beginning. It seems pretty cool to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm not really good at anything. and My wife is brilliant. And it seems really nice and even-handed and nice to be promoting women and helping, helping them, even if they may not be that good at fixing the drains, basically saying they could be good at fixing the drains. So it seems kind of good. So, so men have have been complicit in this, in this sort of redefinition definition of themselves as idiots. Um, uh, but it's it's, uh, it's it's complicated because in everyday life, a lot of the skills that um, men are good at. I mean, I remember my my great aunt saying she was she, her husband had been abusive to her. And he died really quite young, so she was quite pleased about that. And um, but I remember her saying when she was a hundred, uh, "What do you need a man for apart from to change a light bulb? Because <laughs> he's tall, you know, and can reach up and change a light bulb." So um, you can sort of fully understand we've created this world in which we live, where a bloke who's stronger and um, maybe more aggressive and uh, has an interest in fixing things is pretty redundant. You don't need to fix things. Everything comes ready-made or you buy a new one. Um, your main role in life is to be very cautious and risk-averse because that you, know, you pay more insurance, you buy all kinds of safety gadgets, um, you, spend yourself, you spend your time being scared of things and staying indoors and watching Netflix all the time. You know, it's a world in which many sort of traditional male attributes are just not needed. So... It's kind of understandable. You're stifled yeah. a little bit as well. It, it's interesting you mentioned males not being needed in the same way, like you, your, your great aunt joked about um, changing the light bulb or maybe fixing drains, yeah. I think was the other the, the other example that you gave. Technology is, is, is something you wrote about to some extent, and that was back in the early 2000s, but that's certainly increased to an extent where we are a little bit less important. And when you were writing about technology, you were writing from a, an aspect of almost keeping people as infants or as children, which is quite an, an interesting concept. So what, what led you to think around that? I mean, it, it's, it's, there comes a point when you've got something, a piece of equipment that's so 
so complicated you don't even dare try and open it um but i did manage to use my hoover which has a very tiny little thin sucking device you can put on it to suck out the fluff from, <laughs> from my laptop fan which apparently is a tricky thing to do and um, you shouldn't really do it so i felt really good about that but that's about as far as i'd go and um you use two bits of technology there, Robert. <laughs> Surely that's cheating. But no, the, the technology thing is, um, I, I, I think people have to find their own sort of level of comfort with what they can fix or repair. And for me, you know, it started with, with fixing bicycles and things like that. And I never graduated. I've had a motorcycle. I, couldn't, I took it apart. I got it working once and then... And then it sort of went wrong and it was really, really, I bought it for two quid off this kid. It was a knackered thing. Um, and so I'd really reached my kind of level of technology. But I knew people who went way beyond that, you know, to cars and, you know, all kinds of things, got jobs with Rolls Royce. So everybody, but what happens now is that that, even with bikes now, um, I mean, they are fixable, but there's, you need special tools to do this bit and that bit. And so you just give up. I mean, when I first heard that somebody actually had their bike serviced, I thought, that's absurd. A bike is such a simple thing. But yeah, yeah, you know, you get it serviced, you know, because it's got complicated bits. So um, I suppose what I'm saying is that if you live in an extremely uh, uh, a, a world which, in, in order to do your everyday life, you're using all kinds of complicated technology which you cannot understand or fix, you're going to feel a little bit redundant and a little bit ham fisted. Um, so I'm. And almost like almost like a child because you would need yeah. the support of the adults or the qualified or the, exactly. the technicians yeah, to yeah, do yeah. anything to fix. It was a it was a really challenging thing for me to read that point because I am a big advocate of the progression of technology, but I also have huge respect, particularly over the last I don't know two hundred odd podcasts that I've recorded. I've learned a lot about how important our ancestral programming yeah. and our evolutionary psychology is, and the further we get away from it. Unfortunately, we're not adapting at the same rate. So it makes total sense for me that as technology advances faster than we're able to keep up with it, we do feel a little bit childlike yeah, and a little yeah. bit helpless because we aren't able to control yeah. some of the things. So um, we can joke about it. You were unable to, to fix your laptop. But when our laptop breaks, we actually are a little bit powerless yeah. for yeah, a day, yeah, yeah. two days until we're able to go into the Apple store yeah. or wherever we're going and we, we see the gurus there and they're able to put the arm around the shoulder. It's okay, son, I'll fix this yeah. for you. And, and you could be you could be a, a, a 50, 60, 80-year-old man, whatever age, and you're you're unable to move things forward and help yeah. yourself. No, that's true. And I think mm. that we're probably still adapting. I mean, all these technologies are brand new. If, it, if you think about printing and the revolution that widespread distribution of books had over hundreds of years first of all in religion and then technology and all and, and science and all sorts of things you know we've only had the internet for 20 years and um there's going to be huge huge repercussions over the next hundred years so we're we're really just learning to live with it and and learning to live with toxicity you know i mean i believe that many forms in which we take information are actually toxic in the same way that you know too much sugar is toxic it's super refined and you've got to be careful how much you have and we've we've discovered that at to a, you know over 100 years of people having their teeth drop out and all sorts of things i think we're going to find we're taking in very refined information through these technologies we've got we think about um very complex computer games or 
um, movies and things like that, it's producing extremely um, seductive and refined information. And, and I think it will have a, a damaging effect on us. It is already, actually. It's the volume of content, as you say, because we're producing so much more because, it, and again, it's quite funny that I'm very fortunate to have used the technology to create a podcast that reaches thousands yeah. of people that can work on their self-development and their mindset and their health. But if you do go on YouTube, there's not just that type of content. There's all sorts of junk and you're taking it in at such a fast rate and it's being produced at such a fast rate that it's currently always refreshing and coming again and again and again and it is in sharp contrast to books where there's a lot longer and harder barrier to entry to produce that so um a lot of people talk about that lindy effect where an awful lot of what we consume nowadays is is made within the last 24 hours and then thereafter it's discarded whereas many of the books we read and the one that we're talking about today is over 20 years old so they have a much more lasting impact because of perhaps the effort that went into creating yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true, you, you know, that the more effort you have to put into something. I mean, I am a huge fan of YouTube videos that help you do things and fix things. You could, I mean, that's, again, sort of the paradox, you know, technology, you know, at one point empowers us and then it can trip us up and enslave us. So your podcast can reach lots of people, but you have to use very advanced technology, a YouTube video, maybe it's time wasting for some, but it enables others to go out and do things they would never be able to do. I mean, YouTube videos have, have revolutionized the dissemination of a lot of uh, learning. And um, it reminds me of my grandfather, I went to see my grandfather once when he was really old, about 90. And um, he had the telly on, he said the television, marvelous tool for education and i looked at it, it had neighbors on <laughs> so uh it was um he was learning was about australian about culture when it comes to all this technology i guess it's advanced even faster in the last 20 years since you wrote the book as well like if i think about i went to university in 2010 and i had a desktop computer a stack of books whereas now you probably go with a laptop maybe a tablet and all your articles and your journals and everything are all stored yeah. on the on the computer and there's far less need for the the kind of different heavier items that we have and technologies move so fast so much so that like the the phone cameras are constantly evolving like we can create content of a phenomenal level that previously somebody who had the most state-of-the-art big device cameras to carry around wouldn't be wouldn't be able to make as well so i guess with that moving so fast as well how do you think that's affected men in the last 20 years since you wrote the the book initially yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a double, first of all, the taking all your information from one source is, uh, I mean, research into brain plasticity has shown that it makes a, a less lasting impact on you. And so people who, I mean, I had friends who in the first flush of enthusiasm, put all their material onto a computer and only looked at things on screen and, and never read anything except on screen. That's been shown to be bad for your brain because a big part of, of taking information in is all is using all the senses. And so a book, you're using your hands, you've got you know some different perspective, every book is slightly different, a new book is going to have a bigger impression. So you're actually not doing yourself any services by taking everything in through a screen because the brain very quickly works out that everything is the same, the screen looks the same, the colors look the same, and the content is a really tiny part of it. So at least research now is showing us the more diverse the source is, the better. 
But in terms of the impact on um, men, I think, in a way, it's empowering in some ways. I mean, I think that a lot of people who get into photography now, I mean, in, in all its aspects, probably would never have done so in the past because it was quite expensive to use film cameras and quite difficult to become good at it because you couldn't take enough pictures. But now you can take thousands of pictures and become a much more competent photographer. So I, my feeling is you can use the, the watchword, which I, I used in being a man in the lousy modern world is, are you using it or is it using you? As, as, and I think it's a, a really good watchword for, for technology. Are you being used by it? Are you... I thought about it as a framework as well, yeah. um, Robert. So I think about that every time I open social media. Am I doing this of my own volition? Yeah. Am I going on here to post something that's going to support my audience, that's going to further my ambitions, my aims? Am I using it to consume sources that I consciously want to yeah. consume? Or am I being hit by the algorithm and just ending yeah. up watching, not not cat videos, but you know the type yeah, of nonsense yeah. that can come up in our feed that will keep, keep us on there. And I think it's a really useful uh, framework to use. Am I consciously using this or am I doing this through compulsion or habit? And has the technology got control yeah. of me in that regard? And I think that is a is a useful thing for both men and yeah, women. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. thing that we should all be thinking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I know. And um, yeah, good point. <laughs> when, um, when, when you think about being a man in the modern world, Robert, what are some of the challenges and the expectations that are placed upon them that they think they should consider? The challenges are that it's hard to get a variety of experiences that were fairly common in the past, and you might end up getting to be 30 and really have a an impoverished experience base, which is similar to someone who might be 15 in the past or something. And I, I see there's a, obviously a huge problem um, which I, in the book, 20 years ago, I had an intimation about it. I mentioned stuff about mental health, but it has become an explosion. Um, it's not, it's brushed under the carpet um, in so many ways. But for me, men aged 20 to 30, it's just a very difficult time. Usually by 30, people have found their course or path in some way. But those waters are difficult. And, and I put it down to, I mean, it's really complicated, but... Uh, quite a bit of it is experience poverty so you're driven to because you because life is, is providing such a, a a sort of low level of challenge and danger and difficulty that you you have to seek out compensation so you seek it out in drug culture in you know drink you know what people have always done you know go down the pub and get rat arse and pick fights, escapism. escapism of that sort. But it's kind of got a nihilistic and dark edge to it, which which claims its victims. And that's the sort of mental health downturn, downside of that kind of, you know, kind of um, fight culture, if you like, if you could call it that. Um, One of the topics ar around that, Robert, that um, I've, I've talked about a lot on the podcast over the last three years, has, effort, particularly for men, has been a loss of purpose and mission. Oh. So I, I think that's certainly something that's been notable in society as well. And I'm sure we'll get on to some of the, the, the factors that you talk about within the, the book, but there's definitely less of a... I don't want to talk about graduation, but like a, 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 a movement towards and like a ticking off of milestones that really particularly matter because nowadays those have been watered down quite significantly. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I mean, in the book, as a joke, I said, oh, what's the rite of passage for a, for a young man now getting his driving license? And I was sort of saying compared to a tribe in which you have to go out and kill a lion or, um, you know, uh, or even more extreme ones where you have to go and cut somebody's head off. Not that I'm suggesting somebody should do that, but as a comparison between what was expected in certain cultures, what ours is, you know, passing your driving test. But even now, passing your driving test, is it's not that common anymore. You know, I mean, lots of people are choosing not to drive for various reasons, you know, expense, insurance, too many cars on the road anyway. Um, so even these sort of rites of passage have been sort of watered down until there really is no, I mean, that's one of the things, probably go on and talk about it maybe a bit, the net, the essence of a rite of passage to sort of signify the end of being a boy, the beginning of becoming a man, that that sort of cutoff point has been delayed um, or, or obfuscated in, in lots of ways. You described four factors that need to be in place for a man to feel like a man and to be considered a man. And one of those was rite of passage. And as you say, I think there's less tests for people to undergo that have an element of danger or challenge to them in the same way. Like, as you said there, like in a, uh, a tribal setting, you would maybe have an element of risk and danger to your rite of passage to graduate you from being a boy amongst the tribe to being walking amongst the men and, and being like that. And as you say, we don't need to reintroduce that level of violence <laughs> because we're, we're in a far safer society and there's, there's, there's definitely upsides to that. But our chimp brains aren't thinking like that. They're very much wondering, at what point do I need to feel like I've gone from a boy to a man? It's not necessarily your 18th birthday when you're able to go down the pub with whoever and have a legal pint for the first time because we have a massive drinking culture in the in the UK, yeah. a much younger age than that, I think, um, certainly when it comes to, to binge drinking. But we definitely do lack a ritual around transition from boy to man, from my point of view as well. Yeah, we do. And one of the reasons I'm sure the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, I'm a, Duke of Edinburgh scheme, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, and you see people out all the time doing it. It's the most popular and the most popular thing in the Duke of Edinburgh scheme is that hike, that 50 mile hike, because it's a real challenge. And it's not, a, it's not terribly dangerous. It's, it could be a little bit risky in some places. But the whole point is you learn to manage that risk. And you don't know where you're going to sleep at, every, at night. And that is the sort of essence of adventure. So you learn how to combat sort of maybe the anxiety of that. So these are really quite easy to achieve rites of passage for um, that people can design for themselves. And when I was 25, I, I put it into the book, I was sort of at my, a total loose end about what I should do. Lots of projects I'd done had failed. So I decided to walk the Pyrenees from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. And that really did feel like a rite of passage because it was a 400 mile mountainous walk. And um, so I think people can design rites of passages for themselves. It's just not built into the culture. We don't have an opt out. Lots of traditional cultures are opt out. You know, everything's built in. So you just have to go along with it. We now have an opt in culture. And if you're not a kind of, you know, pushy or um, interested or motivated person, you will just be left on the side. It's so easy to coast, and I really, really rail against that in all these discussions that I have, Robert, for living your life on autopilot. Yeah. And again, to kind of break that th third wall, when we were speaking before we hit record, we were talking about the fact that life can seem very quickly if you just always do the same things day to day because there's no 
novelty and it's very hard to identify particular moments when you did something different or when 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 something happened that you can recall quite clearly even though it was a, a longer period of time ago because we do typically just have this it, or if we choose to we can have a very mundane existence if we don't opt out of that as you said and and, and choose to, to to do something a little bit more unusual or um something that stays with us yeah yeah it's, tr- it's true and um when i'm you know you have these moments where you kind of look back on your life and the things that i look i look back on are not really having written books it's um it's the trips i've done those are the things i'm most grateful to have done and um even at the time, some of them were <laughs> were quite awful in places. Uh, most of the time, they weren't. But some some of the time, it's still it does feel a, a worthwhile thing to have done. Um, so yeah, we 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 relinquish that at our peril, I think, in favour of a more comfortable and secure existence. Comfort and convenience is a is a, is a really seductive place to be but as you mentioned with the men's mental health challenges that we're seeing it's not a place that we truly want to be we want to be there from a a, a position of oh it feels quite nice and at that moment in time but as you as you as you've quite rightly illustrated and as, as i'm saying in terms of some of the conversations that i've had many people realize and they wake up and they think this life actually isn't for me because i'm not in a position where i feel strain and stress and challenge and i feel like i'm progressing or doing something that is having meaning to it and i, I like that you use the example of going on that long white long walk through the through, through the pyrenees and it being a, a highly novel experience that all those years ago you can think back yeah. to and think that was like me kind of becoming a, a bit more of a man yeah. and I, I actually heard you say um previously that in the 25 years before that you, you were a bit of a a loss you weren't particularly robust mm. as a as, as a man at that point in time you, you were a boy mm. by all accounts but when you came back you you'd put your body and your mind through something that was different yeah i mean it's one of the um i mean if you if if there could be one characteristic which of course all is shared by men and women of course but it's more emphasized for men and that's courage and how do you grow courage because one of the problems in our society is that we seem to think that courage is something that just drops out of a tree. And, um, but it isn't. I mean, most kids are cowards. I mean, everyone knows that when you're a kid, you know, you know, someone gets, I think it was a Simpsons thing where everyone gets hurt and everyone runs off. And I thought, that's so real. That's what kids do. And you shouldn't criticize kids for that because they haven't learned, you know, it's self-preservation. Being cowardly is self-preservation. And a kid who isn't a coward is probably a loon or a nut. So, but over time, you learn how to be courageous. You learn you learn lots of small skills. There are lots of small skills. It's not some sort of just like one big kind of like thing in your head that says, no, I'm a courageous person. Because it's connected to competence and it's connected to, to insight and foresight and all sorts of other things. So these are the things that you're learning as you're getting older and going into your 20s. And um, so how do you build how do you build courage? Because once without courage, you can't there are many things you just can't do. Um, no matter how um, how much you might want to do them, you, you really need you know, can't you may not be able to help people. You know, if there's an altercation and someone's being bullied, you may not be able to help them if you don't have courage. You may want to. So, how do you build that that baseline courage? And um, you 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 have to put yourself in unusual situations. You have to put yourself in places where you are stripped of your normal comfort zone and, and feel like a little kid. And um, and that's uh that that's all kinds of situations not just um 
you know, physically challenging ones. But the physically challenging ones are a good one, good one to start. I think a lot of um, a lot of men and a lot of my audience are very interested in their health and their fitness. That can be quite a uh, good way to test your your courage and your fortitude yeah. because you put your body through a strain that they've not necessarily been through before and of course your mind quite often wants to quit before your body does because it's telling you to get back to a place of comfort whether that's a an endurance event a strength feat or or, or, or some form of long walk or, or, or a long run or whatever where there is an element of like directional planning as well because that adds an additional stress oh. and strain to it as well and I can completely see in terms of courage I used a really corny phrase when I was talking to a, a psychologist in the podcast recently, a gentleman called Dr. Aria. I said, we we bleed in training so we don't die in war. And it, it, it was very corny at the time, but it, it resonated with a lot of the listeners because they were thinking, well, of course, when it comes to things like courage, these micro exposures build up over time where you actually reinforce this character and this identity trait of yourself as a courageous individual oh. because you've proven it to yourself numerous times. So when perhaps the the big test or the storm does come, you are far better equipped to deal with it than if you've maybe lived a life of relative comfort and ease up until that point and then something does hit you in life that should really quite challenge you you're not as prepared yeah and i i think um courage is natural you know that actually we we have a natural um desire to be courageous we kind of know what courageous action is we've got all the software if you see what i mean um and to sort of run the program, you often, you, as you as you say, you just need to have that experience and build up to it and trust in your various capabilities, you know, and, and obviously physical strength is, is one of them. And um, having been put in unfamiliar situations. So it's, I mean, I remember talking to a guy who'd been in, he was the only or one of the few MCs to have been awarded in, in Iraq in the nine, in uh the, the iraq invasion in 2003 uh, on, on the british side and he held a police station against multiple attacks and he said the thing is courage was normal because if you join the army you probably already are you know likely to be courageous and you've got the right training and you know you're physically fit so it's, a, it's just it's lots lots of the lads were concerned they might not be brave but but they all were <laughs> you know and and so you can sort of rest easy. It's not like some kind of a mate. I mean, part of the problems of, of all these sort of, I mean, I, I read these sort of books, you know, these SAS adventure books, and I, you know, they're a good laugh. Uh, but it creates a, an idea in society that there's this sort of elite bunch of books who are somehow completely different. I mean, no, you know, most, almost all men in my experience are courageous or have within them that capacity. And uh, it just needs this some bringing out and and some extra experiences, and they don't need to sort of put on a pedestal a whole bunch of people who are, you know, specially trained for certain types of warfare. Yeah, there's elements of nature and nurture and all these things, isn't there? And some people definitely have a higher potential ceiling, but as you said, many men have a potential that they haven't even begun well, to try and work on and realize because they've shied away potentially from that in all regards but you're mentioning that the, the army there of course those individuals are those that have maybe tapped into that or went into that far more frequently so when the, the attack comes or the the situation they they kind of demonstrate that on a on what we would deem for an average person like a, almost a superhuman level you oh. think oh wow but if, if courage and uh, right to passage are, are two of your four factors what are uh, what are the other two robert um <laughs> 
you might have to tell me. Twenty years since I yes, wrote the book, and I, 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 I've got, I've got, I've got it written I down. Might so changed, one of, I might have changed them since then. Well, tell me what, what I did say. What did what, I say? One of one of them was killing a beast. Yeah. And uh, I wonder what you meant by that. Killing a beast. Killing a beast. Um, it's it, that's a common. Um, if you look at rites of passage all over the world, killing a beast or a, a member of the opposing tribe, um, often head taking cultures and so on, or raiding cultures. Um, and you know the two could be combined. You know, in a raiding culture, it would be stealing beasts from other people. But I think it's the idea of confronting something that is stronger than yourself and defeating it, either with tools, strategy, cleverness, or sheer aggression. And it's um, you see it in things like the bullfight. You see it in in these sort of ritualized versions of this of this rite of passage. And um, and of course, in modern warfare. You see it in you know the beast is the is the is the opposite number it is the the enemy so I think that it's it's about thinking about what 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 would constitute this 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 entity that is bigger and stronger and more fierce than you and um, and how are you going to conquer it and how are you going to deal with it? And um, one of the things that I wrote down when I was thinking about that particular factor was the capacity, capability to consider how you would have to behave when confronted with something as challenging as that. Yeah. And do you deem yourself capable of standing up to that? So um, if the if the situation arose, could you stand up for yourself and for those around you from a physical perspective? Could you not uh, kill is obviously a strong term, but could you? execute on a, a really violent act if you needed to to protect yourself and your family is that a consideration that men should have to do potentially because that is a masculine trait to protect and to serve those that you feel like you have a duty of care for yeah i mean in my own it's funny you should mention it because well first of all for nervous for nervous listeners the that is those four criteria you didn't have to do all four you know it wasn't like a um, a merit there. A checklist. You could uh, you could you could choose any one of the four, and one of them is is much less demanding. I think we we'll get to that one. But a, a few years after I wrote that book, I was in Canada, and we had been told of a really good camping spot uh, by the side of this remote river in very far north of Canada, um, and it was a good camping spot because there was loads of fish there. Unfortunately, lots of Indians had been fishing on there for hundreds of years. So it was really well known to bears. And we woke up in the morning and there were bears across the river, bears across the stream. And um, and I could hear one coming through the these willows towards me. I mean, and a bear coming through willows, it sounds unnaturally large. It sounds like a massive bloke pushing his way through through the through the undergrowth. And I I thought, what well, well, you know, I knew it was a black bear and black bears you can't run from that's the thing it's not um uh, i mean most bears you shouldn't run from but particularly black bears they do fake charges so i knew that so that's a constituent of courage which is information um didn't i had this thing which was called which we called the bear horn but it was it was actually a um an aerosol can horn you know you get them on pleasure beds and it makes a really loud noise and it's used by researchers who uh deal with actually with black bears and grizzly bears it's supposed to work where well, it worked about 50% of the time when I pressed it 
it run out there. It just made this really sort of pathetic a whimpering noise. A whimper, yes, yeah, not a not a bang, a whimper. And um so I thought, well, what can I do? Okay. So in the fire was this we I got the fire going early in the morning and I got out this big long you know, it was it was more than a stick. It was, you know, a good couple of inches wide and it was all glowing embers at one end. And I thought, okay, if I root that in the ground and the bear comes at me, I'm gonna thrust that right in its mouth. And um it may get me, but that is going to really hurt. <laughs> so that's what I did. Stood there like that. And bear came through the bushes and it stopped about five feet away from me. And it kind of looked at me and it looked at the glowing stick and it just turned around and legged it. So, um, you know, that was, that was conf you know, by accident confronting a beast. But it was also shows how, um, you know, I've done a, quite a lot of reading about bears and I talk to people about them. So I kind of knew, and I had even at the back of my mind, a guy who told me a black bear had come into his camp while he was eating ice cream and had stood right menacing him. And he'd thrown the spoon at its face and it had run off. <laughs> so I did know that, and I had heard accounts of people who turned and run holding uh, mess tins with food in and the bear had gone after the mess tin with food and they'd been collateral damage and, and, and had been very badly injured. So I, I knew a lot of, what needed to be done and I just knew just do that so there was so these these are all sort of elements which facing the beast will bring out in you um and within that you had the capabilities to strike it with a flaming stick if you needed to which I think is important as well because you didn't have qualms in your mind about what that might mean and I know that you um pursued martial arts as well in order to kind of push back against um this kind of loss of uh, masculinity as well and I, I I have been physically training for a very, very long time, primarily bodybuilding strength training. But this year I started boxing training because I believe that not only should I look physically capable of defending myself and perhaps be somebody that people are, oh, he's muscular and strong, but should I have some form of capability within myself as well? And that's played a big role in me feeling like uh, a strong masculine positive presence around those around me by being able to use my fists, but albeit almost never hopefully ever have to use them yeah. in that regard other than punching pads or doing a little bit of sparring and i think that's an important thing for for men to consider as well that almost capability of being dangerous should you require to be i think so i think you've you've got to i mean the amazing thing is that there are lots of weapons to hand so in a way um I remember before I did martial arts, I was really good at finding weapons immediately to hand, even even something like a, you know, those old style magazines that were really thick, full of advertisements. If you roll one up really tight, that is quite a nasty weapon if you shove it up someone's nose or something. Um, so, uh, and often if you've done a martial art that's very specific, like boxing or karate, you might be tempted to just use your fists because you become so good at them, whereas there may be a a very heavy glass ashtray that might be of more use on the table. I mean, I'm just talking in a sort of theoretical way here, but um, certainly those sorts of training like boxing, like Aikido or karate, I think is really valuable because it, it puts you in the mindset of, of, um, of thinking that you are competent to deal with. And many of times you won't, because sometimes you can meet somebody who's an absolute monster and it'd be, it'd be madness to you know they're just going to crush you um but a lot of the time and but but even if you 
you, in order to assess that, you might have to have done this training anyway to sort of know them. And and you you probably had this experience. Sometimes someone who's really big and is used to intimidating people gets very very close to you. So you realise they don't actually know anything about martial arts. What they've done is they've just intimidated people a lot, and, and they're actually very vulnerable if they because they've become so close to you. Um, so, but all of that knowledge comes from from doing it, and um, I think it's very empowering. And I think all boys should. You know, boxing used to be a thing people did at school. I'm not necessarily, I mean, it's not very nice getting punched in the face. Um, uh, but there are lots of others wrestling, um, judo. And I think judo is a bit boring. That's the problem with judo. But, but um, for kids. A lot of the time, though, these things are also teaching you restraint as well. So yeah. learning the capability of these things, but choosing not to use it unless absolutely vital which is a, an important strand to in my opinion a positive expression of masculinity is is control and being able to dictate on your own terms when you use your aggression and when you require yeah. to do these things yeah. but you, you were mentioning for for nervous listeners you don't necessarily have to to do all of these things and, and and the fourth and final one that i know you spoke about was the ability to have like basic skills and capabilities yeah. in terms of with your with your hands what were the kind of things that you were considering when you wrote about that um I was thinking about you know the most basic basic hand skills, the ability to use a knife to carve things, to 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 to, to make objects out of wood, to to skin something. You know these these are these are things people have been using their hands for for thousands, if not possibly even millions of years. We know that you know proto man is used stone tools, and I think there's a huge amount of intelligence. It, it makes sense to think of there being intelligence in our hands. I mean, I worked one point. I was working on a building site with this Irish. Uh, foreman, he was an illiterate, you know, couldn't, couldn't read or write. But he, when he got a spade in his hands, the, the way he could use it was just showed a real kind of dexterity and intelligence. So I think that's a really important aspect of, of us. And um, unfortunately, modern schooling, you know, it's a bit hit and miss where the kids get that. I mean, and it might take them later. I think people develop do different things at different speeds and at different times so it's not tragic that you don't learn how to use your hands at school but it might create a blockage so later you don't go into it but i i do think that it's a crucial part of competence and and a sense i think what we're circling here is this feeling of competence that men have been have had that sense of competence taken away from them because the culture has has been against it and they need or, or it's been replaced with sort of bogus forms of competence um, uh, which involve money and and uh, status, other means of status yeah. symbols, yeah. yeah, just sort of yeah. artificial. So, but competence, exactly. oh, hands, you know, the guy who can fix things. You know, the, we all know that probably had relatives. You know, guy who could fix anything. I mean, that's that's a brilliant thing to be able to do. It's funny when I was reading that, I felt um, not attacked, but definitely um, criticised because I, I look to my dad as somebody that does so much of the DIY around the flat that my brother and I bought together, and he is. It, it doesn't matter what it is he has a, is an ability of doing that and he's not he's not trained as a, a tradesman a joiner or a plumber or anything like that but he will quite happily have a have a go at it yeah. and, and more often not have 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 a relatively good answer to yeah. it and i consider myself and i don't want to say handless but compared to him i'm yeah. not capable like that and it's not something that there wasn't a focus on me or focus for me to to do until i maybe spoke to people like yourself read your read your, read your content and maybe thought about maybe there is something at play there when it comes to men not having the same skill set that they did 
in previous years that was just normal to my dad as he was an educated man, an engineer, like there was no requirement for him to do these things, but he just chose to because that's what it kind of meant to be a man. And he's in his 70s now, so born in the early 1950s. So that's definitely changed in the last few years. Yeah, and I, but I think, um, I mean, it's not on the curriculum, so you've got to do it yourself. Again, it's an opt-in occupation, but there is loads of ways of getting into it. I mean, and I got into um, woodwork. Uh, I, I, know, I wasn't really particularly handy, but in my early 30s, I got, um, I got into tools and buying really, you know, hand tools, really, really good chisels and stuff. I didn't even know how it worked. And um, reading books about them then, but I suppose you could you can easily read videos and and learn how to sharpen them. I mean, for big, it was a big deal for me to actually learn how to sharpen things properly because for years I hadn't really known how to get a really sharp edge on something because it's kind of hit and miss unless you know how to do it. So learning all those things, I, I mean, I learned it later. But you, and sometimes it's good to get power tools to start with because um, hand tools kind of don't. You know, if you don't know how to use them, they can be a bit baffling. And then you work backwards. So I've seen people who start with all the power tools and start making things, and it looks good because it's all sharp and, and well finished. And then they work backwards towards hand tools, so they're then getting more of that traditional skill. So it's again a case of using the technology now. Like I was saying with photography, you could start with a digital camera or a phone, and then move back to a traditional um, analog camera. So. Um, so there's lots of getting options. An early, yeah, getting an early win in anything can create momentum yeah. and allow you to go deeper down the rabbit hole because there's almost like a proof of concept or a proof that something yeah. works and it gives you a, a positive feedback loop in any habit formation I ever try and do. If I can get an early piece of positive feedback, then I'm far more likely to repeat it and go again and then perhaps build up the challenge or build up the inertia and try and overcome that. But once only once I've gathered maybe a little bit of momentum running down the hill, the kind of snowball rolling, whereas if I'm going from a standing start, it's far more far more difficult and i suppose if you use technology in a positive way it gives you that initial um benefit from that perspective so we've spoken about those those four factors and a number of different things linked to it what other things would you recommend men listening to this do to try and reclaim elements of their their manhood and their masculinity in the modern world read all my books no <laughs> apart from that one um a later book i did is a book called micro mastery and um uh that was the idea of i mean mastery is a, is a, is is a, is is part of a sort of male um the idea of yourself being a master of something and yet it can be seen very daunting because we you know you're told you've got to spend ten thousand hours and uh, you know you've got to spend five years as an apprentice and so it becomes a bit of a depressing kind of concept so i came up with this idea of micro mastery are there if you really really focus on one thing um, and I took the example of making an omelette. So I decided to totally focus on that rather than becoming a top chef. And so I looked at lots of, of videos on YouTube and I realized there's loads of real rubbish out there. So if you, if you go in blind, it's really difficult. So then I thought you've got to look at, um, you know, recipe books written by masters from the past, talk to chefs. And I did all of this and I gradually was able to see what was, what are, what is needed to make a perfect omelette. And it's often used as a test case for how good a chef is. So I focused on that and eventually I became really good. And I am, I'm really good at making omelettes and I know a lot about them. Um, and it feels very satisfying because every now and again, you know, you're in a situation where you're going, 
we need to cook an omelette. People go, oh, well, that's good. Oh. So take those specific items, you know, because the, I suppose what I'm saying is what we what we mentioned earlier, the world is so complex, so much, so many possible avenues. You've got to just zoom in. So narrow it right down and just master what, if you have these micro masteries, they can give you great confidence, like you're saying, to build forward. Um, they're great for focusing and they aren't going to take the rest of your life to do. And they can be a way in to the subject. So certainly once I started the omelette thing, I thought, oh, okay, now I understand why people do that in cooking. And then you get it, you get something else. And then I started going into another dish I really like, spaghetti bolognese, looking into everything about that. So it's sort of like a, it's like a, a manageable way into things. So I would say that would be, if you're feeling... Um, feeling down <laughs> um, the two elements I'm always promoting are long distance walks in remote countries to sort of get a challenge and micro mastery is a way of finding a way into something without having to totally commit to it I mean you know let's say you want to make the perfect you know three chord song you know or play some you know smoke on the water the best way you can you know, take something very very small and, and perfect it um, and then find because out it's that positive feedback loop of competence as you yeah. as you say and to the terms that i use were purpose and mission and although those aren't like world famous missions that are going to make you well known or, or 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 massively well regarded they will give you a sense of achievement because you've chosen to work on something that you couldn't do previously and now you have an element of oh rob's really good at that yeah. colin's really good at that and that's a that's a really tremendous thing for a man because you feel that element of like i've i've gone from zero to 100 or yeah. it might even not be 100 it might be zero to zero to zero to 80 or zero to 50 depending on what, what what you're working on in that particular field and that has a an element of real positivity to it and i think that's one of the things that people uh, nowadays when they use phrases like toxic masculinity seriously misunderstand because men who have mastery and have confidence and competence are actually fantastic to be around course, yeah, they're much yeah. less likely to be mopey they're much less likely to be unhappy they're much less likely to be a burden in society they're much less likely to kill themselves which is something that we're, we're, we're going through a, a, a an unprecedentedly high level of that during during this time which is which is devastating and, and really quite troubling so by people having a positive expression of masculinity and and, and gaining all these positive traits that you and i have spoken about we actually end up with a better society for men and for women. Completely. I mean, those, those sort of people you're talking about who have competence are often the ones who are the most likely to encourage women to do things that, they, that they're interested in, if it's, even if it's the same, same area. So it's a win all round. I mean, it's, it's, I think what we're, we're saying is it, 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 everyone, well, people want to be useful. You know, that, that's, a kind of, that's built into us. We want to be useful. We want to be helpful. We want to be involved. You know, we want all these these things and it's really hard to do it um and getting a job in a call center doesn't feel very useful you know i mean it's it's just too removed and so it's really quite hard to sort of find that that i mean let's say you're born and brought up on a farm it's quite easy to be useful there you know there's kind of lots of things where you make a difference because then otherwise you know the crops you have a die. role to play yeah yeah it's it it, it it is fascinating when you think about how when we do strip things back it's sometimes far more easy to find where you fit within this great puzzle of life you're the yeah. kind of jigsaw slot that you slot into and it, it can be multiple as you were talking about in terms of different levels of mastery in different uh, different domains but it, it is fascinating to sometimes 
step back from 2023 or 2002 when your when your when your book was re- released and understand that we don't necessarily have to stay on the tracks that were being taken down in the modern world absolutely you know and um one of the things i did which was a breakthrough for me which may also be of interest to people wishing to pursue unusual paths is you can actually earn all the money you need uh when i was living in japan which in those days was one of the most expensive countries to live in in the late 90s and i i had everything i needed in one day of the week i would start work at 7 a.m and finish at 10 and uh, teaching english and and um you know cut back my life considerably but the rest of the time i spent doing martial arts so uh it proved that was a breakthrough because i'd always thought oh yeah you gotta have a five day a week job you know you gotta be like every other muggins and of course when you work five days a week you think you've deserved those two days a week to go down the pub or whatever you want to do and so your life is just flashing by but if you cut it down to two days a week if you can find yourself a a way of earning enough money to work to live for two days a week um and again we're, we're now back into this whole problem in the uk of expensive property utilities it's militating against that but if you can do that and have five days free to do something else that's more meaningful more useful then you're going to be a hell of a lot happier and progressing in the direction you want to go in I'm a big fan of that message to to wrap up on, Robin. I think it's a really positive note for people to consider because, as you say, you can you can be a conformist to general society, but if you look at the average man, the average woman, they're not particularly happy. So let's buck that trend and do something different that that we can feel a little bit more aligned doing. And Rob, I've loved this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have as well. Where should they head towards if they want to continue the conversation with you and check out more of your stuff? Well, I mean, I. Pretty much all of my books are on Amazon or, um, dare I say it, also eBay. Um, and uh, uh, I've got this blog. I mean, it's got a thousand articles on. I mean, it's going back now over 10 years. So some of this stuff was on the blog. Some of the stuff is on, you can buy books on Amazon. Um, I also do a newsletter with two other guys about MicroMastery, which has some stuff in, um, which you can you can sign up to that's a Substack newsletter called micro mastery uh so yeah yeah i mean my website i can link the i can link the website in the blog and the the email newsletter in the show notes and if if people are keen to get involved with the being a man in the lousy modern world they can definitely find it on on amazon or ebay as you said but thank you so much to you rob and thank you to you the listener i'll be back to speak to you all again very very soon